0: Hey, everyone. This is Ted O'Connell. Thank you for checking out the MedPrep2Go USMLE Step 3 podcast sample episodes. If you find that this audio content brings value to your studies, we encourage you to go to MedPrep2Go.com and check out the subscription podcast. You'll be able to see the entire content outline Dr. Raj Dasgupta and I put together, and you can subscribe if it looks like the audio content will help you succeed on USMLE Step 3. The podcast is completely ad-free and includes over 50 hours of high-yield material for the USMLE Step 3 exam. If you found this Step 3 podcast, there's a good chance you've listened to the Crush Step 1 or the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcasts. You've used our free question bank or you've listened to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls podcast. We hope that whatever you've used in the past has helped you with your studies. As you may know, the goals of MedPrep2Go are to allow you to study on the go to get time back in your day and also to help cut the costs of medical education. We think we've priced the Step 3 podcast very competitively to bring you a great product while allowing us to cover the costs of putting this together and keep it hosted without ads. So thank you for checking this out and for your ongoing engagement with our content.
1: All right, so we have conquered cardiac imaging, and like I said, let's start talking about hemodynamic monitoring. So when we talk about that, I really want to start off with talking about things that are going to be invasive, and then we'll talk about, you know, shock, and that's going to be a very important part of this lecture that I'm really excited about. I'm really excited about talking about the Swan-Gans catheter, but before we get ahead of myself, let's talk about cardiac catheterization. So there's no way that we could talk about acute coronary syndromes and not mention, well, what are going to be my interventions, you know? So let me give you a little spiel about the, about the cath lab. So when we talk about cardiac catheterization, you know, in the olden days I hate using that word, it was primarily used as a diagnostic procedure. Why? Because we would evaluate hemodynamics would evaluate ventricular function. And of course it's important to evaluate the coronary anatomy, but you know, Technology has grown immensely. So what was initially used for, hey, using things for more evaluation and diagnosis has now become something that's a huge part when we talk about treatment. And so, you know, this is an old picture of the cath lab. You know, every time I go into cath lab, I'm always like, where did you get these toys and all these things? But this is a very traditional cardiac catheterization or they're going to be going through the femoral artery to go to the left side of the heart. Let me just say that. Um, Could you find myself or maybe one of my partners in the cath lab sometimes? The answer is yes. When we do a swan GANS catheterization in an outpatient setting, maybe we're evaluating a patient for pulmonary arterial hypertension, we sometimes go through the femoral vein. And if you go through the femoral vein, we're going to the right side of the heart. So it really depends. So... I put this here because sometimes it's it's nice to show exactly what I'm talking about. So when we do a catheterization you can go through different sites. There are alternative sites in the upper extremities where you can go through the brachial artery. This is the classic one going through the femoral artery. What do we do here? We put an introducer sheath. And it's very important because you know it's in the artery which it can bleed and that's why when we pull it out we have to do what's called a fem femoral stop over there. But yes, there are going to be these catheters that are going to curve itself into the coronary anatomy so we could shoot the dye and maybe even pop stents if we need to. So when they shoot the dye, you know, this is going to be why interventional cardiologists are so amazing. And I don't want to build up their ego, but some of my best friends are. And when they shoot the dye, they have very specific uh, positions where the camera needs to be to look at the heart in different views. So you just got to need, you've got to look at your anatomy. I remember one time I was in the cath lab, they shoot the diner, like, uh oh, and I'm like looking at the you know, the screen I'm like, What do you what what are you talking about? What's happening? And they could be missing their whole right coronary. So here's the classic cartoon right coronary artery. You wanna think about the circumflex, definitely the LED. And you wanna take your anatomy based upon the view that they have to see subjectively what's gonna be the flow problem over there. And, you know, obviously our interventional cardiologists do this for a living. They're very, very good at doing that. You know, though shoot to die. I could tell you, it looks like they're missing some vessels over here. So once again, knowing your anatomy is quite important. So even though, you know, I always say when you you take a board exam, everything sounds so simple and easy when you take a board exam, you know, but there are a lot of complications when you do cardiac catheterization, and these are very testable on your boards. So what are going to be some of the major complications of doing this? I mean, of course, it's going to be death. It's going to be making the MI even worse. And even though they won't test this at our board level, you know what I mean? Which is, there are people who are at high risk for the cath lab? Why they have a very, very low ejection fraction? There's very limited room for error. And why am I bringing this up? Is that there were times where I was at the cath lab with a couple of my buddies. Don't tell anyone. And you know they actually have pressers ready to go because if you have a very low ejection fraction and you are putting a catheter in already occluded vessel. Just remember, take a step back and say, what percent of cardiac output goes to the coronary arteries? The answer is 5%. And if you have triple vessel disease or one of the big ones like the left main or or the LAD is going to be occluded, and you put a catheter in there already, you're getting no blood supply. What's going to happen to the cardiac output? It's going to tank. What's going to happen to blood pressure? It decreases. So... Sometimes I've seen, you know, interventional cardiologists start dopamine on these patients while they're doing the cath because their blood pressure is dropping. And it can be scary. So of course, we think about death. We think about, you could make the MI even worse, you know? Sometimes they check troponins after these cath labs and and they're going up, it scares me. And you definitely can get stroke sometimes because remember 10% of cardiac output goes to the central nervous system uh, the CNS, and, you know, if you have, you know, a, 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 if you impair cardiac output that bad sometimes, even if you're doing something good, yes, you can get TIAs and strokes. You can have local vascular complications, of course, bleeding at the set itself. We've all seen hematomas at the site. Definitely arrhythmias. You're putting a catheter in the heart. You, uh, there's definitely times where I'm like, wow, there's some VTAC right there. And, of course, worst case would be porforation of the great vessels. Things that you just have to be aware of, allergies, of course. Allergies to what? Contrast. And when I say contrast, there's no way we could avoid talking about what? Renal failure. And I definitely want to have a couple questions about renal failure and cardiac catheterization before I start teaching it. At this time, and of course, you're putting foreign bodies into an individual. There's going to be a fem stop put in there. We definitely worry about infections. So, um, what about this 77-year-old uh, woman? She was evaluated in the hospital for worsening kidney function. Um, she presented 14 days ago with substernal chest pain and underwent a coronary catheterization that showed the LAD. Um, having arterial thrombosis that was treated with balloon angioplasty and, of course, some stenting. The hospital, course, was uneventful, and she was discharged 11 days ago. Now uh, she presents for a follow-up evaluation. Medical history is significant for hypertension, type 2 diabetes, uh, stage 3 chronic kidney disease. She has a 90-pack year history of smoking, and, of course, she continues to smoke. Current meds, she's on dual antiplatelet therapy, aspirin clopidogrel, ACE inhibitor, statin, beta blocker, and insulin for her diabetes. On exam, she's normal intensive per se. (laughs) She's not orthostatic. She's not uh, based upon the heart rate and blood pressure. BMI is 28. Lungs are clear. The heart and abdominal exam are normal, and there's no lower extremity edema. Okay, where is this going? Oh boy, some pictures and some labs so they have skin findings and can everyone say what this is who can tell me yep this is levido reticularis and that's very non-specific we see it in many 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 different things um bun has elevated the creatinine i think it more than doubled I mean, look at this this is the baseline of one three the ua um, looks like there's a little blood some proteins Leukocyte esterase is in there rbcs are in there there's no eosinophils because they checked that because there were some WBCs in there and no Cas or crystals. So which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Oh, this is a good one. I love this. So I think that um, if you don't know what the answer is, what is it not going to be? And I think everyone's gravitating towards what? This is not going to be polyaritis, nodosum. Why would this 70-plus-year-old female suddenly get polyuritis nodosum? I know what you're thinking. You saw libido articularis, and they always show that finding in many vasculitides. but the answer is no. And and once again, I always say, throw me a bone. What virus should they at least mention a little bit if it's going to be polyuritis nodosum? Yeah, man, give me a little hep B. Give me some hep B. And can polyuritis nodosum affect the kidney? The answer is yes, maybe not the Capillaries per se, but it definitely could affect the medium arteries. Uh, so it could affect the renal, uh, the uh, the renal arteries. So, and maybe they could have some really bad hypertension, which this patient did not have. So this is not going to be deep. We're talking too much over there. Um, is this going to be uh, acute interstitial nephritis? I mean, not really. You know what I mean? They usually have a very acellular u- urine because of the fact that. Where is the problem in the interstitium? Of the nephrons, you know, so it would be very odd. And not that it needs to have it, but there are no eosinophils there. But, you know, this will be very strange for this to be acute interstitial nephritis. I think it really comes down to B and C, but I think most of us could take off C for one reason. I mean, it's the what? The timing. And you guys know this more than I do. Is that if you think this is going to be contrast induced nephropathy, it's usually going to happen to what? Like maybe 24 or 48 hours tops? I mean, this is like, days even weeks maybe you have to go back you know causing this this is something called renal atheroemboli. i mean it's classic for it it has been associated with libido reticularis the timing is right they had a catheterization and basically you know what it is you put a catheter in these arteries you knock off these atheromas these plaques and these plaques will embolize in many places and one place it could embolize is definitely going to be in the renal artery and causing renal issues so the answer here is going to be b outstanding outstanding we'll talk a little bit more about this in one second but well i guess less than the seconds right here so when we talk about the three main findings that can cause this i always say that there is something called blue toes which is going to be because you have a blockage of oxygen delivery to the distal extremities blue toes libido reticularis has been associated with this um, if you do an eye examination, you could see things called colon-hurst plaques in the retina. So just kind of remember this word in itself. Or if they show you a picture of the retina, think about looking for this. And some abdominal pain. You could get some peripheral eosinophilia. It can be associated with hypocomplementemia, And you could think about renal failure at least after about a week. You know what I mean? Persistent renal failure after seven days. So this kind of uh, fits that, uh, those findings. So, here's a couple of pictures of things we just mentioned. I mean, this is going to be blue syndrome. Another picture of libido reticularis, very nonspecific. And if they show a picture of this, you know, this right here is supposedly a plaque, a hole-in-hurst plaque in the retinal artery. So, What happened to this patient, she got stented. So when we talk about stenting in itself, there are so many things that can happen when you go into the coronary arteries. I mean, this is a picture where you see some plaque over here. The stent is not deployed yet, it's here, and there's a balloon around there. So when we talk about shooting the dye, that's always gonna be the angiogram, and sometimes that's the answer, an angiogram. If they do inflate the balloon, it's angioplasty, and that's what they want sometimes, just inflating the balloon, which is very rare nowadays. Nowadays, what they're gonna do, they're gonna deploy a stent. And obviously you can put the stent here. And when we talk about stenting, that you know, it's not easy to to pop the stent because you just can't stent anywhere you want. You may be blocking off other arteries. You know what I mean? It's called like a jailed off, I think is what they call it. When you pop the stent and you block off other arteries. And remember when you stent it sometimes that they, they may actually stick out a little bit and go back into where? Maybe the ventricle, maybe going back into the atrium, depending on where the, uh, the artery is. So it's not easy to deploy a stent. Um, when we talk about the main questions they're gonna ask you about stenting is gonna be from what could happen inside the stent itself. And what do I mean by that? There were two main things they will ask. It's called restenosis and acute stent. Thrombosis, and you know when I look at my slide here. If you're going to read it verbatim, I mean I'm using drug eluting stents here. You know I'm putting steroLymis and paclitaxel. Obviously, these are very, very old drug eluting stents. I really don't, don't even know what generation of stent we are. Every time I talk to my my cardiology buddies, there's new stents all the time. They will never ask you this on the board exams. Are there stents out there that may have some data about not having to be on As many antiplatelets for maybe in a shorter period of time. Sure, I have heard of these. They're not relevant for your board exams because there is not a clear cut stent that is shown to decrease survival, improve mortality yet. So uh, for the board exams, you're gonna call it bare metal stent, you're gonna call it drug eluding stent. You know, and already I'm just gonna hit this button a couple times, and I could say that when we talk about you know, drug eluding and bare metal. There's a little background to it. Bare metal stents were the first one that came out. And it's important to realize that one of the main complications that they saw with bare metal stents was always going to be, you know, restenosis and thrombosis. Which one of those is going to be the worst? It's always going to be, you know, stent thrombosis. Restenosis is kind of like angina for a stent. It's a little bit worse, gets a little bit worse, gets a little bit worse, not a big deal. I mean, when we talk about stent thrombosis, well, that's something that could happen, you I mean, hours after you pop the stent, days, it could happen weeks to months. And the big thing is, could it happen years later? And the answer is yes. And that's what where the big debate is now is how long do we keep them on antiplatelet therapy after we've the stent, because there's always gonna be a balance between bleeding and preventing stent thrombosis. And we'll try to address these issues, but focus on what's relevant for the board exams. So they came out with uh, drug-eluting stents to help out with some of these complications with the bare metal stent. And what happened when these drug-eluting stents first came out, they found out that patients needed to be on dual two antiplatelet therapies in order to prevent both the restenosis and the most importantly, stent thrombosis. But this is like years. I mean, more than ten years ago. At that time, you know, we didn't call it clopidogrel. We actually called it Plavix back then, and Plavix cost a lot of money. So the problem way back when, if you uh, you know pop the drug-eluting stent, is that patients couldn't afford it being on two antiplatelet therapies. But and if they were only on one and they weren't on two, then all of a sudden there was a higher rate of stent thrombosis in these drug eluding stents, even more so than, uh, the bare metal stents, which was kind of backwards, you know? So for a while people were, you know, sort of, you know, doing bare metal stents quite a bit, especially if patients had no insurance, no money, poor follow-up, you know, they would think about doing these, you know, bare metal stents, but, you know, for a while now, you know, Clavix does not exist, we call it by its generic name, which is clopidogrel. So everyone can afford being on dual antiplatelet therapy with clopidogrel and aspirin. And because clopidogrel has been around for so long, we, it's the most extensively studied. And why am I making a big stink about this is because on board exams, they're gonna ask you a question about what antiplatelet besides aspirin could do this, this, and this, and you just don't know what to pick. Chances are the answer is clopidogrel because there's so much data about it. We're gonna talk about you know all the different you know antiplatelets that we have now, and what are the contraindications to use some versus others. But these are brand name uh, antiplatelets. They are very expensive. So uh, we'll, we'll get to it, okay? So nowadays on the board exams and in clinical practice, chances are you're gonna get a drug eluding stent, all right? And that would be my default answer on the board exams. So let's talk about restenosis and stent thrombosis and other antiplatelets in in a couple seconds. So when we talk about stent thrombosis, yeah, it's like having you know a sudden MI. It's like having unstable angina, and of course, usually it's going to happen in the area of where you pop the stent. And we already mentioned that this can occur within hours and up to years. That's how scary it is. So let's talk about. What are going to be the other antiplatelets that you want to add to aspirin when we talk about uh, p- popping a drug-eluting stent? I'll say this right now. I'm going to be very specific when I give my talk, talking about what is the criteria for dual antiplatelet therapy for stable angina, and what is the criteria for dual antiplatelet therapy when we talk about acute coronary syndromes, that they have two different uh, sets of guidelines in regards to duration. I'm just going to make some broad statements right now to kind of set the table up a little bit, okay? So when we talk about uh, the other drugs, um, there's always going to be what we call the P2Y12 inhibitors, you know? and there's aspirin there's clopidogrel and this has been generic since wow it's so long ago since 2012 you know so this has been almost 10 years now that plavik said goodbye to us you know um another one is called ticlopidine, but what did I say right here it's a historic drug this will not be on your board exams in the year 2020 um some things that were some old board questions about it was an association with TTP. It was also associated with neutropenia. And because of some of these associations, we don't use ticlopidine that much anymore. The ones that we have seen and used is pasigril. we'll talk about it, and tigrelor. So for the boards, clopidogrel, pasigril, and tigerlore are going to be the three antiplatelets, the p 2 Y12 inhibitors that you do need to know for the boards. And when we talk about these medications, I wanna talk about each one individually so we'll know when would you consider this medication. So it just so happens, my next slide is Pasegril. So Pasagril got FDA approval in 2009. Wow, it's so long ago. And what happened was its approval was for a reduction of thrombotic events thrombotic cardiovascular events, including stent thrombosis, which we just talked about. And we definitely use this in patients with acute coronary syndrome, but they got to be managed with stenting. So when I think about Pasegril, claim to fame are patients who got stenting. I do want to say that there were some studies comparing Pasegril to Plavix. There's definitely an increased risk of bleeding compared to Plavix, Um, Clopidogrel, excuse me. But The key thing about this medication is that if you decide to use it in someone who has acute coronary syndrome who got a stent, that there is an absolute contraindication if there's a history of a CVA or TIA. And I can't begin to stress this, that this is a gimme question on the board. When can you not use PASOGRIL? History of CVA or TIA, you cannot use this antiplatelet medication. All right. Ah, Tiger lore. So, you know, I put this journal article here because this is one of those things that many cardiologists talk about in their journal clubs. And this was comparing Tiger lore to clopidogrel in patients with acute coronary syndrome, which we're going to be talking about. And this study actually came out and showed that Tiger lore actually reduced mortality. And everyone loves a mortality study, better than clopidogrel in patients with acute coronary syndrome. And what happened was, is that, you know, for a time being, there was, you know, Plavix and Tigrelor, and what the drug company could have done, which was AstraZeneca, was actually, you know, release this medication, you know, I think it goes by the brand name Relanta, when Plavix was Plavix, because if you were going to spend all this money to get Plavix at the time, well, then if you got a choice to get a better drug like Brilanta, then why not get Brilanta if you're spending all this money? But for some reason, and I, and I trust me, I know why, uh, Brilanta was released after Plavix became generic. So that kind of stinked for the patients, because now there is a drug that reduces mortality that's very, very expensive. So a little tricky by the drug companies over there, but what's Brilanta's you know, claim to fame is that it definitely reduces mortality compared to clopidogrel, and we definitely use this medication in patients who come in with acute coronary syndrome that either are going to be treated me- medically or getting a stent. And how do you choose this drug between this and Pasegril based on getting a stent is that on the board exams, they got to mention this, that patient has some kind of CBA or TIA and therefore will not be a candidate for grill One of the nutty questions I've seen in many of these board review classes I wanted to mention is dyspnea that can be associated to tiger lore. I, I do forget this, so I, that's why I put a bullet point, is that if they give you a board question where someone is doing well, there's no cardiac etiology, there's no pulmonary reason of why this patient's short of breath, that Tegelor in itself can cause dyspnea, and it's a well-recognized side effect, and it's often self-limited. So if you just kind of stay with it, follow up on these patients, it does self-limit. So I have seen this question on the boards. So I think we need this, right? We definitely need that summary of the antiplatelets so we'll know exactly what to pick and when to pick it. So on one side, I put aspirin because that's always going to be the one they put in the vignette. So aspirin, I'm gonna read you these bullet points, is the mainstay in the treatment of acute coronary syndrome, should be administered to all patients unless obviously they have allergies to it. The recommended dose in patients who are receiving dual antiplatelet therapy is 81 milligrams. On this side, I put the P2Y12 inhibitors. There have only been three that are tested on the board exams. Clopidogrel is gonna be the most widely studied, it's the oldest of these. And it got FDA approval for people who get stented and for medical management. So this is my go-to combo with aspirin on the boards. These two are duking it out, right? Tigrelor, known as Berlanta, super duper expensive. It got FDA approval for medical and stent, medical and stent. Passagrill got FDA approval for only stenting, for only stenting. And it's contraindicated with people who've had CVA and TIA. And the only way to distinguish this from Tigralor is going to be, for stent patients, is going to be they have to give you this history of CVA. Okay? So if you could just look at this slide in itself, this will give you all the answers in regards to dual antiplatelet therapy. So once again, back to stent thrombosis, that... It's not easy to diagnose, but you definitely want to look in the area of where the stent was, signs of EKG changes, signs of abnormalities in doing any type of imaging. And this slide may not be as relevant anymore. This is more historic. This is when we talk about proton pump inhibitors and Plavix. And I really feel the younger generation who's watching this video doesn't even probably remember this, but in 2009, a very hot topic was these PPIs, specifically- omeprazole, and esmomeprazole, prilosec, and nexium, you know, uh, having a a supposed interaction with clopidogrel. You know, newer data states that we shouldn't worry about this, but you never know when you guys do old board questions from other review courses, you'll be like, what are they talking about? So maybe not as relevant anymore, but I thought this was very interesting. Right when this study came out, when the FDA put this statement out there, uh, a new PPI came out called uh, brand name Dexlent, which I don't really like, like excellent. Uh, and its claim to fame is that it had the least interaction with clopidogrel. So just in case you had to give a PPI or when you guys do your cardiology rotations, you're like, huh, why did the cardiologist pick this PPI instead of something cheap like uh, Prevacid or Prilosec is because of some of the data from 2009 about the least interaction with clopidogrel. So I just wanted to mention it. So remember, this is all about the invasive things we can do to evaluate the heart. Uh, I had to put endomyocardial biopsy, and the answer is this is not commonly done. It is scary. You could do it at the bedside. You can do it under fluoroscopy, and the reason why we don't do it is for obvious reasons. You know, it really doesn't change your management in most cases. When do we think about doing this? When will be appropriate? I think rejection. You know. Here at USC, I mean, I'm very blessed because we do have a lot of transplant. I do get a chance to see a lot of transplant patients. And if there's someone that comes in who they're worried about rejection, sure, go ahead and biopsy. If you are worried about cardiac toxicities of a medication, you know what I mean? Meaning specifically, you know, the anti-cancer drugs, you mean like doxorubicin, daunorubicin? sure, you can argue that that's gonna change your chemo regimen, so you can consider doing that. Um, and the last thing, you know what I mean? I wanted to mention of why we'd consider doing an endomyocardial biopsy is a very, very rare entity. You know, at least for us, cardiologists should definitely know about it. It's called giant cell myocarditis. And some of you are like, what are you talking about, Dr. Raj? So this is kind of my beyond the pearl slide. You'll be surprised. They might sneak one in there. And, you know, my first words are it's rare, but the big thing is it's fatal. There's really no proven cure about this. Patient presents with symptoms of heart failure. They may initially present with ventricular arrhythmias, even a heart block. And the third bullet point is kind of depressing: ninety percent of patients may have either deceased by the end of one year, or they pretty much need a heart transplant. And even if you have a heart transplant, for some reason, this can actually uh, reoccur in those patients. And you need to make this diagnosis based upon biopsy and. If you're gonna ask me, what do we do besides that medically? You might give them steroids. That's what we do when we don't know what to do. And as rules of thumb, when we talk about endomyocardial biopsy, just two things, you know, what is the pretest probability of a disorder and is there effective therapy of why you're making this diagnosis? Which is why we don't go around biopsying if you think it's viral induced because for viruses I mean, what are we gonna do? The answer is probably what? Nothing, exactly. And here is a quick picture of an endomyocardiobiopsy. So, wow, we have finished the invasives. So where do I wanna go from here? I actually, before we, I know everyone's so excited about jumping into acute coronary syndrome and CHF. I do wanna talk about the Swan-Gans catheter. I also wanna talk about shock. So let's do that next, but first, Why don't you catch up with your notes? See you soon. All right, we are back. So now we're going to start talking about shock. And why are we doing that is because we talked about doing a left-sided catheterization to look at the coronary arteries. So now let's talk about a right-sided heart cath known as a Swan-Gans catheter. Um, And when you talk about the Swan-Gans, what is one of the many reasons why we want to do this is because to evaluate the etiology of shock and is shock going to be on your board exams the answer is yes so let's do both um let's start talking about the swan gans first so when we talk about the swan gans catheter there, there, there has to be a story there's always a story so the year is 1960 and in 1960 there was a race the race wasn't to get to the moon the race was to get to the left side of the heart and we always could get to the left side of the heart with an arterial stick but putting a catheter in the artery has a lot of complications. So the big thing is, can you get to the left side of the heart through a venous stick, through the right side? That was the trick. So there are heroes in our story. Their names are Dr. Swan and Dr. Gans. And does anyone know where Dr. Swan Dr. Swan and Dr. Gans, where they practiced? Yeah, um, they practiced in California. and. Do you know what hospital in California uh, Dr. Swan was from? No, it's not USC. Uh, that Everyone always says that. It's going to be Cedars, Cedars-Sinai. That's right. And, you know, in fact, you know, does anyone know one of, you know, Dr. Swan's passions was sailing? And what he would go to a very specific pier. Here, does anyone know what Dr. Swan's favorite pier was? Oh, I can't believe it. Someone said it. You said Santa Monica, oh my God, stalker over there. But yes, that's right, it was Santa Monica, you know. So Dr. Swan would go to Santa Monica Pier and he'd watch these sailboats, you know, kind of, you know, floating along the ocean. And this gave him an idea about the big problem, which is how do I do a venous stick to get pressure readings on the left side of the heart? So if you can look at my diagram over here in red, you can see the catheter, coming down into the right ventricle, then it has to go up into the pulmonary artery. It goes down, then it goes up. So in general, uh, is that easy for a catheter to do that? Yes or no? No, it's totally difficult. So what did Dr. Swan think was, well, when you saw the, the sailboats floating across the ocean, he said, wait a minute, let me put a balloon at the tip of this catheter, and maybe this can help out. And what do I mean by that? Think of it this way. If I had a balloon, look at the room you're sitting in when you're watching this video, and you have filled up this whole room with water, and I fill up a balloon down here on the floor, where is that balloon gonna go? It's gonna go whoop up. It's gonna rise, and that's what it means when you put a balloon at the end of this catheter It's gonna float into the pulmonary artery, hence the word, floating a swan. So when it goes into the pulmonary artery, we we do push it a little further to it wedges right in here called the pulmonary capillary. So how do we know that we're there? Well, there's many different ways, you know. Uh, First off, you could do a swan in any of the big veins in the body. You could swan, my favorite place to swan, if I have to do it, is always the right IJ, right internal jugular. Why? It's a straight shot right down into the right ventricle and you can go up. Uh, You could do the left IJ, but then it has a crossover. I'm not really, don't really like that. Uh, You could do subclavian, but right subclavian is like big sharp, sharp term. Uh, I like the left subclavian, it's a little easier that way. Um, And you could swan also from the femorals, you know but you know in the ICU it's going to be probably above the diaphragm and when I do it it's going to be a blinded procedure sometimes you can do it with fluoroscopy down in uh, you know when you go down the radiology so when I go through the different chambers I know based on length I know based upon resistance but usually what happens when you folks do a swan there's five ports one of the ports hooks up to a pressure transducer and you can see waveforms, the pressure tracings of the different parts of the heart. So you can see the pressure tracings in the right atrium. And that's what we call the JVP wave. You know, And a JVP wave is bimodal. It has two humps to it. And back to step one, that's called the A wave. Then you get this little C wave. Then you get the X descent. Then you get the V wave. And then the Y descent, it's bimodal. And that's when you know you're in the right atrium you keep on pushing it to the right ventricle, then you keep on pushing it to the pulmonary artery, then finally, you kind of wedge it, you know? And when we're doing all this, obviously the balloon is gonna be inflated for a lot of different reasons. And then when you wedge it right here, it's not measuring the pressure here at the pulmonary capillary itself, it's measuring things distal. It's measuring things distal. So that's why, you know, if they were to ask you on the boards, The pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is a direct measurement of what? The answer is always left atrial pressure. Why? Is because if you look up in my diagram, you know, it goes from the pulmonary capillaries to the pulmonary vein, from the pulmonary vein into the left atrium. And if I were to ask you, what is the name of the valve, you know, between the pulmonary vein and the left atrium, the answer is there is none. And that's why, because there is no valve, it's a direct measurement when we talk about left atrial pressure. But if they were to ask the question, what is the swan gantz an in indirect measurement of? It's gonna be an indirect measurement of left ventricular and diastolic volume. Why is because, what is the name of the valve between the left atrium and left ventricles, the mitral valve? and. W- uh, what part of the cardiac cycle does the mitral valve open? The answer is diastole, because you want to fill the left ventricle. So when the mitral valve is open during diastole, it's going to be a direct measurement of, well, indirect measurement of what? Left ventricular and diastolic pressure. Remember, balloons don't measure volume. Balloons measure what? Pressure. We use the pressure to imply the volume. And what is another name for left ventricular and diastolic volume? The answer is preload. And that is one reason why we do a SWAN-GANS because it's an indirect uh, estimate of what the preload is. And is preload important in cardiology? The answer is yes, because preload is part of what? Stroke volume. Stroke volume is part of what? Cardiac output. And one of the main things that we can manipulate as critical care doctors is the preload by giving fluids, by taking fluids away. So it's very important to get this um, measurement. So that, my friends, is the squand Yann's catheter. But how are we going to use this, you know, clinically? Well, I'm going to press this button. You're going to to see one of the coolest charts in the whole world that I made. Boom. This is going to be how do we evaluate shock. So let's spend some time on this because this is going to be one of those talks where it's going to be triple star high yield for the board exams. So when we talk about shock, well, Let me start off by saying this, you know I mean? Let's look at this blank blue box here. And you could write down, is shock defined by having low blood pressure? And the answer is no, it's not. Don't get me wrong. If we talk about any one of these shocks, I'm sure the mean arterial pressure is gonna be low. And if you were to ask me, well, how low? I would always say that if it's lower than 65 millimeters of mercury, despite giving IV fluids or you're on pressors, well, that's pretty much gonna be shock, right? But low blood pressure doesn't define shock. Shock is always gonna be defined by this orange box over here that says impaired tissue perfusion. And we'll talk more about that in a second, but impaired tissue perfusion is defined as impaired oxygen delivery or impaired oxygen consumption. That really is what defines shock, but don't get me wrong any one of these shocks over here is going to have a low MAP. It just doesn't define what shock is. So um, let's go across the top and say, what are the four parameters that I look at as a clinician uh, at the bedside and on board exams to figure out what is the etiology of the patient's shock? So the first thing is always going to be cardiac output. So cardiac output is defined as heart rate times stroke volume. And if I were to ask you, which one of these two, heart rate or stroke volume, contributes to cardiac output the most? The answer is, oh, stroke volume by far. And if I were to ask you what are the three parameters that make up cardi- uh, stroke volume, it's always gonna be preload, it's always gonna be contractility, and it's always gonna be afterload. These are the three parameters that can manipulate stroke volume. And once again, stroke volume is part of what? Cardiac output. So notice below cardiac output I put CI what does that stand for cardiac index so what is cardiac index as far as the equation it's cardiac output divided by the body surface area so many people ask why do we care you know but i think of it as trying to standardize all the patients so let's say there were there was me then there's someone next to me who was shorter and smaller and tinier and, And let's say that this person, imaginary person, smaller and tinier than me has a cardiac output of four liters. That's great for the tiny person, but would that be good for me? And the answer is no, you know? So that's why when you give me the cardiac output in the ICU, you know, some patients are big or small, high BMI, low BMI, it doesn't really standardize it. But if you divide the cardiac output by the body surface area, it gives me one number, cardiac index of two or three or five. And that tells me that no matter how big, small, tiny, large you are, I know how your heart's functioning. So in board purposes, you could use cardiac output and cardiac index interchangeably. Uh, Next is going to be my favorite. We just did a Swan gans catheter. So in order, we're going to look at the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. So To get this value, you need to measure it. So you need to do a swan GANS, you know. And I'll be honest with you that do we do a lot of swan GANS lately? The answer is no, not really. You know what I mean? Of course, I want my pulmonary fellows to have all the knowledge they want before they graduate. So we do a couple for them, you know. But I I don't really have a big role in doing it anymore. But still, they have questions on your board exams. And like I said, what do we really care about is the indirect measurement, which is its left ventricular and diastolic volume, which is it's going to be a marker of preload. And we really need to know that. Uh, the next value in the purple is going to be something called SVR, systemic vascular resistance. So uh, when we talk about resistance, how do we manipulate this equation that you have down here is that we actually took the equation for flow in physiology. And not that you care, and I know you don't care, but it's Pusayo's equation, which is flow is equal to pressure one minus pressure due divided by resistance. We solve for resistance, which means resistance equals P high minus P low divided by flow. So now we just kind of put in the values. The high pressure is going to be the arterial side. We use MAP. The low pressure is on the venous side. We use the CVP and we divide that by flow, which is cardiac output, and that will give us resistance. In this case, we're talking about SBR. Um, just so you guys will know, SBR is the same thing as TPR, total peripheral resistance, systemic vascular resistance. We use these terms what? Interchangeably. So this is not a value that you could just measure directly. You have to calculate it. And to do it, you need an arterial line, you need a central line. So you, you need to have a lot of information in these patients to figure out what SVR is going to be. The last and probably the most important is going to be this value that is measured directly. So this is called a central venous saturation. Uh, there's a central venous sat. There's a mixed venous sat. A mixed venous sat is when you have a swan GANS catheter that's in the patient above the diaphragm. A central venous sat is a central line that's placed above the diaphragm, but essentially, what you're measuring is the amount of oxygen bound to hemoglobin before going to the lungs. Say it once again. The amount of oxygen bound to hemoglobin before going to the lungs, that's called a central venous saturation. So, you're asking me now, well, why do we need to know this value? Is because that measured value is a great marker for tissue perfusion. And tissue perfusion is what defines shock. And what are we talking about now? Shock. So, Once again, tissue perfusion is defined as oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. Oxygen delivery is made up of two main things for your board exams. The most important concept of oxygen delivery is what? Cardiac output, cardiac output, cardiac output. That's why when the heart doesn't work, you're not delivering oxygen where? To tissues. The other part of oxygen delivery is hemoglobin. Why? Because who actually carries the oxygen? it's the hemoglobin. So oxygen delivery is equal to cardiac output plus the hemoglobin, I'm really simplifying it. And then the second part is oxygen consumption, meaning that can tissues, organs take up the oxygen? And we could actually calculate oxygen consumption, and I'm not being a mean person, but does anyone know what equation you could use or the name of the equation you could calculate that calculates oxygen consumption is called? Yeah, it's called the Fick equation. And the Fick equation you should know, especially if you're gonna be a cardiac fellow, because not only can you use that to calculate oxygen consumption, you could use that to calculate what? Cardiac output. And many times when my cardiology buddies are in the ICU, they do use the Fick equation to get a value for cardiac output. So, why did I go over all this? Is because when you get this value, the central venous sat, it's a marker of tissue perfusion, which means oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption understand what this value is gonna be, just answer this question. Folks, anytime oxygen delivery goes down, means it's going down for, maybe there's poor cardiac output, maybe there's no hemoglobin. Anytime oxygen delivery goes down, what happens to oxygen consumption? Does it go up, go down, stay the same? The answer is, it goes up, it does. As oxygen delivery goes down, consumption goes up. So how do I think about it? Like in a funny sense, if I was a starving tissue and there's no oxygen being delivered to me and I finally get oxygen, am, am I going to be like, oh man, it's cool, move along, move along. No, man, I'm going to pick it up. So that's why when we measure this value, if someone has you know, a problem with oxygen delivery, like cardiac problems, as delivery goes down, consumption goes up, the value, the amount of oxygen bound to the hemoglobin going back to lung is gonna be very what?
0: Low,
1: exactly. So that's why it's such a great marker. And if you get all these four parameters, then you can kind of figure out what is the etiology of shock, especially when they give you a board question. So now let's talk about what are gonna be the types of shock. So there are three main types of shock that I put here. Someone's gonna say, where is obstructive shock? And sure, there is such a thing as obstructive shock, but that's kind of like a mechanical cause of shock, not really fitting all these hemodynamic parameters. And when you have obstructive shock, you need to what? You know, correct the obstruction. So what are the three main clinical examples of obstructive shock? Number one, tension pneumothorax. Number two, cardiac tamponade. Number three is gonna be a massive pulmonary embolism. So how do you correct the blood pressure issues on that? Well, if you have tension pneumothorax, decompress. Needle, second intercostal space, mid-clavicular line. Put it in there, when quiet. You wanna hear the what? <laughs> Which you'll never hear. But uh, if it's gonna be a pericardial tamponade, we talked about that earlier in this video, remember? I had that patient where they're like, hey, Dr. Raj, do you want to do the, <laughs> the pericardial syndesis? I'm like, really? Um, and then there's going to be the uh, massive PE, or that's when you're going to do either thrombolytics or some kind of intervention to get the clot out. But we didn't put that here. We're going to put the three main causes of shock that really fit these hemodynamic parameters well, which are going to be hypovolemic shock, cardiogenic, why we're talking about this here, and, of course, distributive so let's just kind of define each one of these first and then we're going to play the arrows game so when someone comes in and has whoops i almost went to the game right away if you have hypovolemic shock it really comes into two flavors it's going to be hemorrhagic and that's going to be someone that's bleeding out so that's why when someone has comes in they have low blood pressure what do my residents and fellows do right away Hey, STAT h h hemoglobin hematocrit, because you don't want to miss hemorrhagic shock because you may not see the blood going anywhere. It could be going where? In the abdomen, retroperitoneal. Who knows where it's going? And of course, you could have dehydration. You could have diarrhea. You could have vomiting. All these things will cause you to be in hypovolemic shock. Difference here is that these patients should respond when you're giving back blood product or IV fluids. Cardiogenic shock, thank God, that this is not very common and if you do have it it's really not going to be from a it's not going to be from a little angina it's going to be a massive mi you're going to knock off the left ventricle and we'll talk about the parameters of this <clears throat> the last is probably the most common which is going to be distributive shock and when i think of distributive shock the most common ideology by far is going to be sepsis septic shock Some other etiologies could be anaphylactic shock, there could be neurogenic shock, but definitely you're guaranteed at least to be asked about septic shock at least once or at least identified based on hemodynamic parameters on your board exams. So let's start off up in hypovolemic and show you where the arrows go. So I always tell tell it like a story. Someone comes in in hypovolemic shock. What would the cardiac output be? High, low, normal? And obviously, the arrow is going down. And why is cardiac output low? Is because if you're hypovolemic, you don't have any what? Volume. If you have no volume, you're not going to have any what? Preload. Preload's part of what? Stroke volume. Stroke volume is part of what? Cardiac output. So therefore, cardiac output's going to be what? Down. Very good. Um, you do a swan GANS. You measure the capillary wedge pressure, it's going to be what? Low. Why? Because we said that the capillary wedge pressure is an indirect measurement of what? Left ventricular end diastolic volume, which is what? Preload. And we just said these patients have no what? Preload. You calculate SVR. What would SVR be in hypovolemic shock? Well, it's got to be High. Why is because when we think about our total blood circulation, where is all the blood in the body? It hangs out where? In the veins. Because when we compare the venous circulation to the arterial, the venous circulation is super mucho compliant, very compliant. Because it's so compliant, it has what? Decreased elasticity. And therefore, it's like a reservoir. A reservoir of what? Blood. And what percent of total blood volume hangs out in the venous circulation? It's going to be around 60 to 70%. So when you increase SVR, because remember there's going to be smooth muscles surrounding these vessels, and they're going to be innervated by what? Sympathetics. So when you increase the sympathetics, you're going to constrict, and you're going to take all that venous blood just kind of hanging out and doing nothing and putting it back Where? into the effective circulation. And that's why SVR is gonna be what? High, very good. Last but not least, you measure the central venous sap because you need to have a central or swan Gantz there. And you measure the amount of oxygen bound to the hemoglobin before going to the pulmonary capillaries. And what would it be? It would be low. Why is because what did we say makes up oxygen delivery, cardiac output. And we already said cardiac output is low. So if oxygen delivery decreases, consumption has to be what? Increased. So if you're consuming more oxygen, that means less oxygen will be bound to hemoglobin going back to the lungs. So the central venous set value has to be what? Low. Very good. So let's talk about cardiogenic shock, hence cardiology. Someone comes in with a massive MI, ST elevation all over the anterior leads, V2 to V6, you know. So um, in those individuals, um, what would cardiac output be? Well, it has to be low. You just knocked off what? The left ventricle. So it's got to be low. You do a swan-GANS catheter. And if you can remember what, uh, where, you know, where is the wedge going to be placed, What would the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure be in an MI, high, low, or normal? Well, yeah, the yellow arrow is pointing up. It's gotta be high. Why? Let me go back a slide. So if you just knocked off the left ventricle right here, all the volume and pressure is gonna what? Back up, and it backs up through the left atrium, through the pulmonary vein, and what's here? It's the wedge. So the wedge is gonna be what? High, very good. If you were to calculate SVR. What would it be? High. And why is that? Because once again, cardiac output is going to be low. And how do you want to increase cardiac output in cardiogenic shock? You want to increase the preload. And the same concept happens. All that blood hanging out in the venous circulation by giving sympathetic tone, it will put it back into the effective circulation. Stroke volume goes up. Because preload went up, cardiac output would increase. You want SVR to be high. And what would the central venous sap be in cardiogenic shock? Well, it's got to be low. Why? Because if cardiac output is down, that means oxygen delivery is down, which means oxygen consumption has to be high. And if if oxygen consumption is high, that means the amount of oxygen bound to the hemoglobin going back to the lungs is going to be low. And stop right there, which means that if you look at what we went over so far, the main reason why we did so much swan-GANS catheterization in the olden days is because the only way to determine if it's cardiogenic versus hypovolemic shock is to look at what value. That's right, the wedge. The wedge. Very good. So let's go and talk about probably the most common cause of shock, which is septic, which is around 60 to 65% of all shocks. So something comes in in septic shock, let's say they have gram-negative sepsis, they're bacteremic, they had a ventilator-associated pneumonia, and now they're in septic shock. What would the cardiac output be, high, low, normal? Well, it's gonna be high. Why? Is because the heart is working harder to pump blood out and perfuse all these tissues, and can the heart keep up with this throughout this shock state? The answer is no. That's why you need to what? Correct the underlying cause. Give the antibiotics, drain the abscess. But also, you know, another way to categorize shock is that these top two, hypovolemic and cardiogenic, are called low cardiac output state shocks, and distributive are called high cardiac output state shocks. So cardiac output here is going to be what? High. If you were to have a wedge and you were to measure the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure in septic shock, what would it be? High, low, normal? Well it has to be low. Why? Is because in distributive shock, where is all the volume going to be? Is it going to be in the vessel or the third space? The answer is the third space. And that's what really distinguishes hypovolemic from a distributive shock, because in hypovolemic, once you give the fluid back, the blood pressure goes up. But in septic shock, there's a sequestration of fluid. The more you give, the more it goes where? In the third space, so the blood pressure doesn't respond with IV fluids, and that's why you have to start giving what? Pressors. If you were to calculate systemic vascular resistance, what would it be in septic shock? Notice there's a downward pointing arrow. Now in theory, you want SVR to be high, you just do. But in septic shock, it's low. And that is the telltale sign of having distributive shock is that there's systemic vascular resistance in all these three examples, septic, anaphylactic, neurogenic, it wants to be high, but something is preventing it. And that's why it's gonna be low. So let's talk about the most common, which is, why is SVR going to be low in septic shock? The reason it's low is because there's impaired tissue consumption. And let's talk about that in one second. So when we talk about why is oxygen consumption low, well, for a few reasons. But this is also the reason why, if I were to ask you, what would the value of the central venous sap be in septic shock? This is not a mistake. It's going to be high. Why? Is because, number one, oxygen delivery here is what? High. So it's not a delivery problem, but the problem is a consumption problem. And if tissues are not consuming the oxygen, it stays bound to what? Hemoglobin. So when you measure it, it's going to be high. So, Now let's go back to SVR being low. Because we know that tissues can't consume the oxygen, well, that's where the problem is, right? Because remember, every cell, tissue, organ in the body needs food. And what is the food for the body? ATP. So in order to make ATP through oxidative phosphorylation, which is the electron transport chain on the mitochondria, you need what? Oxygen. And the problem is that they're not consuming it, so there's no oxygen. So you're not making ATP. So now things start backing up. So you don't get ATP, you start just getting ADP. And if things continue, you're just gonna be getting the A. And what does the A stand for everyone? The answer is adenosine. And as adenosine starts building up, adenosine is a very potent basal dilator. And because it's dilating, What happens to SVR? It stays what? Low. And it's going to stay low until you correct what? The underlying cause because tissues need what? Oxygen. There you go. And what else happens is because you have no oxygen, you can't use my favorite enzyme in the whole world. And what's my favorite enzyme? Pyruvate dehydrogenase. And next thing you know, these get shunted over to the other enzyme known as what? lactate dehydrogenase. And what happens to lactic acid levels? They go up. And that's why when we talk about septic shock, when we talk about how do we diagnose it based on like Medicare, Medicaid guidelines, not only do you need to have a MAP lower than 65 millimeters of mercury, you also need to have an elevated what? Lactic acid. And do we trend our lactic acids? sometimes? The answer is sure, why not? To make sure that we're del- we're giving that oxygen, meaning that those tissues can get that oxygen consumption. So just to complete this talk, if you're going to ask me, why is SVR low in anaphylactic shock? The answer is one word. What word am I thinking about? That's not the word. What word am I thinking about? Histamine. Because histamine is a very potent vasodilator. Next is going to be neurogenic. And be careful, if someone has neurogenic shock, you're only going to have a low SBR if the damage to the spinal cord is really in what anatomical area? Is it going to be lumbar? Is it going to be thoracic? Is it going to be sacral? No, it's going to be where? Cervical. Why? When you get a cervical cord transection, then you know what's next to the cervical cord is the sympathetic ganglion. And when you sever the sympathetic ganglion, what happens to sympathetic tone decreases? Blood pressure goes what? Down. You could never basal constrict. And you get unopposed parasympathetic, so what happens to heart rate? It goes down. And that's why a neurogenic shock is categorized by what? bradycardia and hypotension. Good. So, folks, what do I do here? This is a great time to just, you know, when you're not watching the video just kind of draw this chart out you're gonna have a lot of questions from this so let me just kind of give you a couple of quick one-liners about questions and then we will take a quick break so 71 year old male is admitted with hypotension tachypnea and tachycardia his heart rate is 122 the blood pressure is 83 over 48 and respiratory rate of 28. a swan hands catheter is inserted and I put the values here. Cardiac output is high. The wedge is normal. SVR is low. What hemodynamic picture is this consistent with? Well, there's only three choices. And I think most of us are going to pick what? B. And what is the telltale sign of this being distributive shock? The answer is SVR being low. This is a high cardiac output state. Low SVR, this is Septic shock, very good, very good. What is the diagnosis of the patient with the following hemodynamic profile on swan ganz monitoring? Cardiac output is low, the wedge is low, SVR is high. This is gonna be, that's right, hypovolemic shock. What is the tail, tail sign of hypovolemic shock here? Oh, you guys are amazing, thank you for listening. The wedge. It's gonna be what? Low, very good. 68-year-old male presents to the hospital with increasing shortness of breath, orthopnea, paroxysmal, nocturnal dyspnea, palpitations, history of CHF, physical exam reveals by rails, hypotension, look at that blood pressure, it's low. Swan Gantz, low cardiac output, high wedge, SVR is high, They also give pulmonary artery pressures, which are high and right atrial pressures, which are beyond high. What is the diagnosis? There's no questions here. This is cardiogenic shock. What is the tail, tail sign of cardiogenic shock? Definitely a very high wedge with a low cardiac output. But this is only part one. So in this patient with cardiogenic shock, of these choices, what would be the preferred drug of choice on your board exams? And the answer here is going to be, yeah, dobutamine. Why would I not pick norepi, dopamine, phenyl, which is an alpha-1 agonist, or vaso that works on ADHV1 receptors? It's because all these will increase the what? Afterload, pressure in the arterioles. And when you increase the afterload, what happens to cardiac output? The answer is it goes down. So in this case, where you find the combination of a low cardiac output and a high wedge, you may strongly wanna consider a what? A contractility agent. Now, one thing I would be concerned about in this patient is the blood pressure being low. As many of you have had this experience, when you use drugs like dobutamine, you use drugs like milrinone, what happens to the blood pressure? It goes down. So you definitely wanna have a second presser ready and sometimes when I'm hanging out with my cardiology buddies, they may do a dobutamine. If the blood pressure's not holding up, they may do a little low dose dopamine to, to just to keep the blood pressure up so the contractility agent can come in. But on the board exams, one dimensionally, the answer here is going to be C, dobutamine. Very good. So that was quite a long talk about shock. The reason why I spent time with it is because I know it's going to be high yield from the boards. Why don't we just uh, take a quick break? finish up your notes. We'll come back and let's start talking about things like the acute coronary syndrome. See you soon.